We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Today we're talking about prayer. All right, we're talking about prayer. We're in this short four-week series called Foundations of Formation, talking about things that, that build a foundation in our lives for spiritual formation, for spiritual health throughout our lives. And we've talked about rest and the need to take rest, the, the benefit of rest and the calling of rest for us and, and the worship that comes out of taking moments of, of rest, quieting our souls before God. And we've talked about work. And, and last week, um, Pastor Patrick used the phrase that uh, for many of us, we either um, are idle in our work, right, laziness, or we make work our idol, right? We overwork. We're workaholics. And, and he talked about having a healthy understanding of work. What's the goal of work? What's the mandate of work for us? And, and how is that actually an aspect of worship? And this week, we're talking about prayer. And next week, we're talking about lament. Now, lament is a type of prayer. Right? It's, it's a form of prayer. It's going to be more specific in the idea of prayer. Um, but, but I'm really excited to get into that next week because actually where I'm at spiritually and emotionally today um, largely is the result of the practice of lament in my life. Right? That, that has been there over the last six months. So I'm excited to talk about that next week. This week we're talking generally about prayer. J.I. Packer says this about prayer. Some of you saw a quote that I put on Facebook this week. I'm not quoting that one. I know that just popped into your mind. It's a, it's a funny quote about prayer. This is not. We must learn to measure ourselves, not by our knowledge about God, not by our gifts and responsibilities in the church, but by how we pray and what goes on in our hearts. Many of us, I suspect, he says, have no idea how impoverished we are at this level. Let us ask the Lord to show us. Many of us, he says, I, I believe, are impoverished. We have no idea how impoverished we are at the level of prayer. Survey says that there's around 90% of those who claim to be Christians have zero to very little active conversation with God. Right? 90% little to, to zero conversation with God. Our culture is not built for prayer. <laughs> We're not a culture that, that makes prayer easy. We're in a culture of busyness, right? We're always doing something, busyness that disables our slowness to rest, right? It's one of the reasons we put rest before we got to prayer because you have to learn how to rest in order to have times of prayer. When you busy yourself always with things, like it's really hard to stop for a moment and to actually just be in the presence of God. We have a culture of progress, Right? There's this demand in our culture for progress in every area of our lives. We always have to be progressing. We have to be gaining more, earning more, living more, accumulating more, doing more, accomplishing more. This progress, this culture of progress doesn't value slowness and pause and contemplation. We have a culture of self-help, a culture where we're supposed to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, figure it out yourself, pull your weight type of culture. And prayer is actually the opposite of that culture. Prayer is, no, you don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't figure this out. It's not about you pulling your weight. It's about you bringing your helplessness. We have a culture of scrolling, an endless stream of info and photos and opinions and comparisons to busy our minds. We dampen our imaginations and frustrate our souls and silence our requests as we scroll. 
we become more concerned about appearing put together than asking God to actually put us together. Not only is our culture not built for prayer, but our minds are full of frustrations around prayer. We set goals to pray, but then we get interrupted. Right, you ever sit down to pray? You're like, okay, I've got a prayer list. I've got my journal. I'm gonna sit down, I'm gonna do this. And you get 45 seconds in and your mind's somewhere else. You're like thinking about the pile of laundry that you haven't done. You're considering that task at work that you have to do. You're wondering about your kids that have been causing you trouble. We begin to pray. We make it a short amount of time and our thoughts and thoughts flood our minds. We have needs, but we feel, well, um, needy to bring them to God. We have wants, but we feel selfish for asking for them. We have frustrations, but we feel immature, like we're lacking faith, like we're childish if we bring them to him. We know that we should worship him, that we should say something good about him, but, but what do we say that doesn't sound stupid? Right? It's almost as if we expect that when we say something to him about him, he's either going to respond with, yeah, I know that about me already. What, what else do you have? Or he's going to say something like, well, actually, that's not theologically precise about me. So we just feel stupid to come and say anything to him about him. We've heard others pray, and our prayers are not nearly as sophisticated. They're not as thought out. They don't use as intelligible of words. They're not as well-spoken as theirs, and we feel dumb. And all of these frustrations build within us and so we sit down for our time of prayer, and in a moment, our culture intercedes with us, and our, and our thoughts intercede with us, and, and we just want to quit. And then on top of that, we have the emotions of prayer. Right? Our hearts feel shame to come to God because of our sin. How can I come back into his presence knowing the sin that I just committed? There's shame in us because we bring our needs to him, and we should be able to figure these things out. Right? I have an education, like, I, I, I'm, I'm an intelligent person. Like, I have some resources. I should figure this out. Why am I bringing these to him? There's shame built around that. And if we want to be honest, most of us feel sure that he doesn't really want us there. He doesn't really have time for us. Surely we're a bother. Obviously, he has more important prayers to listen to than our prayers. And so there's emotions of shame built around prayer for many of us. So we close our journals, we open our eyes, we put it away, and we're just like, well, I'll try again another time. We walk away. It makes prayer very frustrating for many of us. It's a discipline that we do not master. It's a habit that we do not hold. It's an invitation that we do not accept. Be present to God that if we're being honest, we actually don't really know. The best I see it, there's two ways to tackle the huge topic of prayer in one sermon. We could either go, let's do some how-tos today. Let's talk about, hey, here are ways to maybe eliminate some distractions, get alone. Here's some good tips, some tools. Here's a, an acrostic that you can use to walk through prayer. And, and all of those things can be beneficial and all of them can be good. But the other way, and the way that I want to tackle it today is actually to invite our hearts into prayer. Rather than go, here's a how-to for you to step into and try to eliminate the frustrations, to actually invite our hearts to go, what is the heart of our Father to have a conversation with us in prayer? Why can we come to him and how do we come to him? With what posture do we come to him? With what, um, with what type, of, um, uh, type of presentation do we come to him? And how does he receive us? A couple books that have been really helpful to me in this area are one, J.I. Packer's Praying. 
right? The subtitle is Finding Our Way Through Duty to Delight, right? Jai Packer's Praying. And then Paul Miller's A Praying Life, Connecting with God in a Distracting World. I'd recommend either one of these to you if you want to read more on prayer. As we talk about prayer this morning, I want to give us a few disclaimers. First, this is not going to say everything there is to say about prayer, right? Second, I will not cover every type of prayer this morning. Third, I will not address everything we should say or do in prayer. And fourth, I simply want us to see how Jesus invites us to come to God in prayer. All right, so hopefully that cuts down on some emails this week. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 14. I think I said Matthew 5 earlier, but it's 6. 5 through 14. <coughs> in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 14, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches on prayer. He teaches us the Lord's prayer. Chapter 5, he says this. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There is a lot in this passage. We're not going to hit everything in this passage today. We're actually going to be in several other passages as well today. But I want us to see a key word that is over and over and over again in this passage, and that is the word Father. That prayer is a child coming to a father. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, shares a, uh, a make-believe illustration of someone coming to visit a prayer therapist. For those of you that have been to therapy, this will resonate well with you. You've probably had a conversation like this, not about prayer, but about your actual dad. Let me read you a couple paragraphs. Let's imagine that you see a prayer therapist to get your prayer life straightened out. The therapist says, let's begin by, booking your relation, uh, by looking at your relationship with your heavenly father. God said, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me in 2 Corinthians 6.18. So what does it mean that you are a son or a daughter of God? Well, you reply that it means you have complete access to your heavenly father through Jesus. You have true intimacy based not on how good you are, but on the goodness of Jesus. Not only that, Jesus is your brother. You are a fellow heir with him. The therapist smiles and says, that is right. You have done a wonderful job describing the doctrine of sonship. Now tell me, what is it like for you to be with your father? What is it like to talk with him? You cautiously tell a therapist how difficult it is to be in your father's presence, even for a couple of minutes. Your mind wanders. You aren't sure what to say. 
you wonder, does prayer make any difference? Is God even there? Then you feel guilty for your doubts, and you just give up. Your therapist tells you what you already suspect. Your relationship with your Heavenly Father is dysfunctional. You talk as if you have an intimate relationship, but you don't. Theoretically, it is close. Practically, it is distant. You need help. Right, if I was to say, tell me about your prayer life. Tell me about your time with God. Most of us could say, here's what I do. I pray at mealtime. I pray before bed. I have a morning prayer time. I have a prayer journal. I try to pray this way. To which you could go, hey, that's great. That's, that's a good that's practice of prayer. But tell me about your prayer life, what's happening in your heart, in your mind, in your soul at the moment of prayer. Tell me about what happens between you and God in prayer. Well, now that begins to reveal a different story. That begins to reveal a different story. Most of us have daddy issues with God. We don't see ourselves being able to come to him as children and him as a father. We don't know if we can trust him. We don't know if he listens. We don't think he has the time We don't believe we are welcomed in his presence. We aren't okay coming to him messy, needy, broken, tired, frustrated, afraid. We feel stupid and silly and unimpressive coming as we are. And if we really get down to it, we aren't sure that dad cares. And if he does care, we really aren't sure if he is able or willing to do anything about our prayers. As we look at this passage, I want us to notice the word repeated over and over and over again, the word Father. Look at verse 6. But when you pray, go into the room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Again in verse 6. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In verse 8, it says, do not be like them. Um, for your father knows what you need before you ask him, right? Don't be like who? Don't be like the Pharisees who just use empty words. They say a lot of words. They say fancy words. They try to use a lot of different words to impress God and to win God over. And he goes, God sees through that. He already knows your needs. Just come to him. Just come to him in simplicity. And then look at verse nine. Pray then like this, our father in heaven. The the beginning of coming to him is coming to him as father. It goes into Hollywood be your name. You're different, you're holy, uh, you're, you're worthy. I'm not anything like you, you're apart from me. But before that, we come to him as dad. We come to him as father. This is how Jesus teaches us to address God in prayer, as our father. It's a relational closeness, a term of acceptance, a belonging, a family. It's a term of security and protection and provision. Father. Jesus, God's son, teaches us to pray by coming to God as our father and as needy children. He promises here in this passage to see you when you do. And he promises to know your needs, that he already knows your needs that you're about to bring to him. And he listens attentively to you. 
One of my favorite verses on prayer um, since I first began preaching. I mean, I remember preaching on this passage when I was like 19 years old and a youth pastor at a church never should have had that position. I remember way back then and preaching on Psalm 116, verses 1 and 2. And in Psalm 116, verses 1 and 2, it says, I love the Lord because he hears my prayers and my cries for mercy. Because he bends down and listens, I will praise him all my days. I love the Lord because he hears my prayers, because he bends down. Like a father to a son who wants to hear what the son has to say, he comes low to us and he puts his ear to our mouth and he listens. Your father comes close to hear your prayers and your cries for mercy. You are accepted in your father's presence with your prayers. And I realize this. I realize that in a broken world shattered by sin, there's a lot of us who don't have this experience with our own fathers, and it makes it really hard to see this true with the heavenly father. Some of us come from abusive fathers, Fathers who yelled and screamed and beat and disciplined unfairly and abused. Some of us come from fathers who were neglectful, who didn't protect, who didn't watch out, who didn't provide, who didn't encourage. The abuse of our fathers taught us that there's bad people in this world, particularly dads. And the neglect of our fathers taught us that we are bad people, not worthy of their attention. And so for many of us, even if we don't realize it, we have trouble coming and seeing God the Father as a loving Father who accepts us and receives us because for some, at some point in our lives, we came to Dad and received nothing. Cold, tired, ignored us, brushed us away, made us feel stupid, belittled us. So it's really hard to see the Father in heaven as gentle and receiving and having time for us. I work really hard at creating the space in my family for my kids. Like my, my son knows he's more important than all of you. Right? If I'm in a meeting, even if it's an elders meeting, which are typically at my house, um, my son's typically there with me. If he comes up and interrupts me, like I pause what I'm doing to hear my son. I might tell him just a moment, but then I'm there as quickly as I can to hear what he wants, to see what needs are there. He's more important than those men in my room. I know that doesn't make the meeting flow the smoothest. It sometimes distracts us. It sometimes delays us. But if at all possible, I want my children growing up seeing as consistently as possible a father who has time to receive them any moment they want to come with whatever requests they have that can listen and give and speak to and care for those moments, emotionally, physically, spiritually, whatever that is. Because though I don't do it perfectly, their Heavenly Father does. And I want there to be enough built up in them that they believe they can go to God the Father the same way. But secondly, I want us to think about this. First, we are told by Jesus to come to the Father in prayer, right? We come to God in prayer as our Father. But secondly, I want us to think about what it means to come to Him as children. 
Because the reality is this. When we hear Jesus say, hey, come to him as father, right? Pray, pray our father. Most of us think about what it looks like for us at whatever age we are to come to a father. Right? That's just our framework in life right now. I'm 41 years old. My father is still Rick Hedger, has always been Rick Hedger, and I still come to my dad for things. I come to my dad for conversation. I come to my dad for advice. I come to my dad for his fishing boat. Right? I come to my dad for things still. But coming to my dad at age 41 is a lot different than when I was 5 and 7 and 10. And the illustrations that Jesus actually uses in Scripture look a lot more like children who are 5 and 7 and 10 than they do grown adults coming to the Father. Right? Grown adults come to the Father, and they, they're, they're put together. They, they are responsible. They're, they're coming with reasonable requests, and, and they're wanting to present them in a good way, and they're wanting to at least present themselves as, look, I'm respectable. You can, you can respect me now, Dad. Children, they don't think that way. They just come with eagerness. Like when I would come to my dad as a child, I was excitable, and I was eager, and I was sporadic. I needed his aid, and it didn't bother me that I needed him. I was quick, and I was amazed at his strength. Right? I came to him urgently for need, and I was quickly amazed at how strong he was. My dad could shoot a basketball unlike anyone I knew at that age. Right? I'd never watched a game on TV. We had the little black and white fuzzy thing. But my dad was the best basketball player in the world. I was amazed at his ability. He could build a treehouse like it was the Great Wall of China. Right? I was amazed at the strength and the wisdom and the intelligence and the abilities of my dad. Easily, easily amazed at him. And I was quick to come with need and pester him until I got what I needed. This seems to be what Jesus values. He values little children coming to him. Let me show you what I mean. In Mark chapter 10, I won't turn there, but in Mark chapter 10, verse 13, you have this story of Jesus is teaching and the little children try to come to him. And the disciples, the adults, they keep the children away. They keep the messy kids, the loud kids. They're keeping them away, and Jesus rebukes them. Do you remember the story? He rebukes the disciples, and he says, let the little children come to me, and he gathers them up, sticky fingers, muddy feet, all of this onto his lap. He gathers up the children. They gather all around him, and he looks at all the adults, and he goes, if you don't come to me like this, you don't get to come to me. If you don't come to me messy, if you don't come to me um, raw, if you don't come to me with sticky fingers and with messed up lives, you don't come with me with their excitement and their faith and their joy, if you don't come to me like this, like these children, you don't get to come. I don't want your professionalism. I don't want your put together presence. I want you to come like little kids. And then in Luke chapter 10, Jesus has sent out his disciples, the 72, and they've gone about the streets uh, in, the, in the cities, and they're, they're proclaiming Jesus, and they're casting out demons, and they're healing the sick, and they're all beginning to gather back up with Jesus, and they are giddy. I mean, they are, like, excited about what's going on because they've been seeing demons kicked out of people, and they're seeing lame people healed, like, from them. Like, they're, they're calling on demons to leave, and demons are leaving, and they're laying hands on people, and people are being healed, and they're coming back excited. They're giddy. They're happy. They're like, like hyper about this. I, I picture high fives and arms around shoulders laughing, talking about the experiences that they've had as they've seen the bigness of God manifested through them into the lives of other people. And they are easily excited about God's bigness in this moment. I just picture Jesus just smiling and laughing with them. And then he says this. He says, I thank you. Jesus stops and prays. And he says, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things 
from the wise and the understanding and have revealed them to these little children. I thank you that you've hidden these from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to, to the kids, to the ones who are acting like children, who have childlike faith. Jesus is celebrating the disciples' childlike faith that births a childlike joy in the bigness of God. Joshua, what does this have to do with prayer? Like these are people going out and doing things and Jesus talking about gathering the children to them. What's this have to do with prayer? I'm so glad that you asked. When Jesus talks about prayer, he invites us to come to God as our father, as children do, shameless and bold. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11. <coughs> Luke chapter 11, we'll begin in verse nine. Jesus is teaching on prayer in Luke 11. And beginning of verse 9, he says this, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? So he says, listen, come and ask your heavenly father for what you need. Ask, bring your request to him. What father, when their child, and here he uses the illustration of children, what father, when a child goes, hey, could I have some bread, goes, how about a stone instead? Enjoy chewing on that, kid. What, what father, when a child asks for a fish, instead goes, here's a scorpion, a herpet doesn't seem going down? What father would do that? Even evil, wicked fathers don't do that. Don't do that. But but God the Father, how much more would God the Father, who is good, who is perfect, who knows your every need, how much more is he eager to give you the bread and to give you the fish to answer your prayers? Come to him as a child and make your request and know that he's a good father who's ready to give what you ask. Let me ask you a question. How do children ask? How do they ask? Do they come to you, parents, with a well-thought-through plan? They've put together a wonderful plan for what they need. They come to you. They have it all lined out. Here's A, B, C. Here's my outline, Dad. Here's how I know the return on investment's good. Right? And they bring you a good presentation. No, they just come and ask. And then they ask again, and then again, and then again. Right? When my son has requests, there's two things that, that characterize his requests. Number one is he keeps asking over and over and over and over again until he gets what he's asking for or an answer that suffices why he can't get what he's asking for, right? So much so that if your answer is no, he'll go, will you think about it? No, no, we're not gonna think about it. But will you think about it? No, we're not gonna think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, we'll think about it. Yes, there's a chance. That's his response, right? That's the type of illustration here. Not only is it a repetitive asking, but it's also a big asking. He asks for big things, big trips, big gifts, big time, big attention. He wants it all big. He doesn't want to fight me a little. He wants to fight me big and forever. And when the fighting's done, five more minutes, Dad, it goes on 
and it goes on, and it goes on. He's not afraid to ask for more. This appears to be how Jesus values prayer. Because when Jesus gives us illustrations of adults praying in Scripture, he actually gives us two illustrations, and they're both adults who act like kids. Let me show you what I mean. Chapter 11, verse 6 through 8 of Luke. We just read verse 9 and following, but just before that, Jesus has been teaching on prayer. It's, a, it's another time where he's teaching the, the Lord's Prayer. But look in verse 5. We'll actually start in verse 5. It says this, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And, and he will answer him from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. The children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. The picture Jesus paints for us is this. Help me, let me help you think culturally in this. They're living in a one-room house. And in this one-room house, there's one large bed. And the parents and all the children are in bed together in one large bed. And in this one-room house with this one large bed, all the animals have been brought in for the night into the house to keep them safe. So the animals are across the floor, the family's in the bed, and there's been a large iron rod driven through the door to lock the door so no one can break in. And a neighbor has a friend come over in the middle of the night who's hungry. He has no food, so he comes to his neighbor's house in the middle of the night, and he begins banging on the door. And it's waking up the kids and it's waking up the animals and the cows are starting to stir and the sheep are starting to bad and it's causing a scene in the house and the man hollers from within, go away. What are you doing? You're gonna wake up the kids and wake up the animals. Now I'm having to yell at you, leave me. No, you can't have bread, it's midnight. Wait for breakfast. But the man doesn't leave. He just stands there knocking. I need bread. Give me some bread. Get out of bed. I need some bread. You're my friend. Give me bread. And it says, even though he wouldn't get out of bed because he's his friend, right? Not sure they're great friends, but even though he wouldn't get out of bed because he's his friend, it says, because he won't leave him alone, he gets out of bed. Right? The word it uses is impudence. The word can also be translated shamelessness. Because the friend knocking has no shame to keep asking. How do children ask their parents for stuff? Without shame. They ask and they ask and they ask and they ask big. Why not? All I know of mom and dad is they can give. Maybe they say no, let's go for the ask. And if they say no, we'll go for a think about it. And they ask and they ask. And Jesus is making the point, if this man who will do this because of this guy's shamelessness, if he'll get out of bed, disturb his children, wake up the animals and do this, how much more will the father, your father in heaven, who never tires and never rests, how much more will he give you what you ask in the middle of the night? The other story is in Luke chapter 18. We won't turn there. But in Luke chapter 18, you have the story of another adult who's asking shamelessly. It's a woman who's seeking justice from an unjust judge. The unjust judge won't hear her pleas for justice. He won't answer her pleas for justice. He won't speak on behalf of her. But she keeps asking and she keeps asking and she keeps asking. Every day she comes back and they're like, she's here again. And the judge has to hear her case again. And it says that because she wore him down, he gave her justice. Right? She just flat wore him out. And he's finally like, Fine, throw the other guy in jail, justice. 
And Jesus is saying, and Jesus follows that up with saying this, will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? No, he will give justice to them speedily. He will find faith. But will he find faith on the earth, Jesus asks. So Jesus goes, if the unrighteous judge relented because the woman won't stop asking him because she just wore him down, how much more will the good judge not give justice? I mean, he's ready. He's able to give. He's coming to give it. And then Jesus follows it up with this question. But will the good judge find faith when he comes? And what is the faith he's talking about? It appears the faith he's referencing is the shamelessness to ask over and over and over again. That what Jesus is actually celebrating, what he's honoring is persistent pleas for God's answering of prayers. This is an act of faith, not immaturity. And the scriptures seem to paint this picture throughout all of them a picture of needy people coming to a God for help, persistently and shamelessly asking of him. The gospel of John is this journey for us. Throughout the gospel of John, we we saw this. In chapter four, there's the woman who has no water. In chapter five, the man um, with no helper and no strength to stand. In chapter six, the crowd with no bread. In chapter eight, the woman with no purity. In chapter nine, the man with no sight. And in chapter 11, the brother who who no longer had life. Over and over again throughout the Gospel of John, it's story after story of people who have no hope, who are helpless, who have nothing coming for help. And Jesus giving them life, giving them bread, giving them purity, giving them strength, giving them water. Jesus says, this is what prayer is. It's sitting in the presence of our sovereign God of the universe who happens to be our father and who is able to help as he desires to help. And we come and we sit with him and we ask of him and we plead with him over and over and over again. What does it look like practically? Well, first, it looks messy. It looks messy. It looks messy sometimes. It looks needy most of the time. It looks peaceful in time. It looks lazy all the time. Coming as needy children look like all of these. To become dependent on your father in prayer, you have to be okay with looking lazy to other people. Every time my children ask me for something, like, there's a piece of my flesh that goes, man, they're being lazy. Why don't they just get up and get that themselves? And sometimes that's the appropriate response, not, hey, you're being lazy, get up and get that yourself. Sometimes it's like, hey, you can get that on your own this time. But man, what a joy to be able to go, hey, you came to me with need, with want, I can get that for you. I can do that for you. You have to be okay with looking lazy in the eyes of others because to have a prayer life, you have to stop doing and start just being present with God. It looks needy most of the time, right? Right, Because most of the time, our lives are full of need. That's what we're coming to God with. I have need. I have lack of wisdom. I have lack of resources. I have lack of understanding. I don't know what to do with my kids. I don't know about this friendship. Uh, I have this person sick in my life. I can't help them. I have need. It's going to look peaceful in time. Prayer life looks peaceful in time because as you spend time with the Father, bringing your need to him and your mess to him. Ultimately, he brings peace to your heart in that process. 
And it always looks messy because we don't really have our crap together typically. And that's what he wants. Not as the Pharisees with all their words, but as the children who just come with simplicity, sim, sim, the simplicity of their questions, of their needs. Let me give you two examples from this past week of what this looked like in my life for the last two weeks. Two weeks ago, we were on vacation, and we were in Labadee, Haiti. Royal Caribbean, we're on a cruise. Royal Caribbean owns their own um, little resort at the edge of, Lob, uh, edge of Haiti. And so you're on this beautiful island, and, and this resort has a fence around it. So the only people allowed in are the people who have paid money to be on the cruise and the people being paid money by the cruise, right? And so it's a glorious, beautiful resort. I mean, just breathtaking scenery, mountains um, all around you, crystal clear water, blue seas, just breathtaking, the breeze coming over. And there was this moment where I walked out into the water that week. I just kind of stood there in the water for a little while, about waist deep, and I'm just standing there, and I'm looking around at the scenery. My heart was at so much peace, and as I looked at it, I just began to just thank him, right? It was like, God, thank you for this. I mean, I mean, if you can't have thankfulness in your heart in that moment, I don't, something's missing, right? Like, you're standing there, you're just like, thank you. Thank you for time away. Thank you for the peacefulness of the sea. Thank you for the beautiful trees, and, and as I started doing it, I started thinking about, and Tish came up and stood by me, we, we started thinking about how this is what the psalmist does, the psalmist seems to be so scatterbrained at times. He's just living life, and as he's living life, he sees things, and it just goes, thank you for that. Oh, that reminds me of how big you are. That reminds me of how glorious you are. Oh, those mountains remind me, I can't make those. You made those. Well done. Right? And so, so just standing there, this began to be my worship, just a thankful heart of thank you for all of this. Thank you for the beauty. Thank you for this remnant of beauty in a life that's full of suffering. Right? Life is hard. Like, I have to go back to hard things. And in the midst of all that, you're giving me a moment of beauty and rest. Thank you. And then it hit me. The thought hit me. On the other side of that mountain is not a resort. On the other side of that mountain is not people paid by the cruise line and not people who had money to pay to go on a cruise. On the other side of that mountain is disaster. There's mudslides, and there's hurricanes, and there's earthquakes, and there's murders, and there's a president who's been killed by his people. Like, this nation of Haiti is an absolute disaster on the other side of the mountain. And at first, I began to feel guilty for standing there, right? for being in this water in my swimsuit, enjoying this, and not being over there doing some sort of relief. But it turned my prayer from, thank you for these beautiful mountains, to, God, would you help those people? God, God, would you be with them? Would you comfort? Would you provide? Would you bring stability? Would you watch out for the kids tonight? Would you bring care and protection for them? And then in the midst of praying for them and beginning to feel really sad and down, the Lord just reminded me, in the midst of all of that brokenness, there's a remnant of beauty. There's a remnant of beauty. And it's constantly spurring me on to remember that one day he will make all things new. That the joy and the peacefulness of my resort will one day be the joy and the peacefulness of people that reside on every island of the world. And so then it turned the prayer back to thankfulness. Right? I didn't come with well-thought-out thoughts. And I promise you, that whole thing happened in the span of about five minutes and there was probably about three of those five minutes that I got distracted by something going on in the water 
like a fish touching me or something like that. And I paused my prayer and I was distracted and I wasn't just sitting with him in this most amazing intimate moment. It was full of distraction and full of interruption, but it was a conversation spurred on by what I felt like I was seeing and realizing about God and his world. So I was able to come to him with thanks and I was able to come to him with need and I was able to come to him with my fears and my emotions and then I was able to worship him. It happened again this week. Our family received some really rough news this week about the health of a family member. There was a night that my wife and I were just in the, in the closet in the bedroom just crying. A lot of crying, a lot of weeping, and not knowing what to do. And so laying there on the closet floor, I just began to cry out, Jesus, help, Jesus, help, Jesus, help, Jesus, help, Jesus, help. Because I didn't know what else to say. I had no sophisticated, I need you to do this, this, and this. I just knew as a kid who's seeing something that I can't fix, and I have no answers, and I don't know how to care for my own soul. I don't know how to care for my wife's soul. I don't know how to fix the problem. In fact, I can't fix the problem. I don't know how we're going to face this situation. As we began to do that, it was just, I need help, 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 help. And our son was playing outside with some friends up the street playing basketball. I was like, I got to get up. I got to go check on him, make sure everything's okay. So I get up and I go down the stairs and I walk out the front door and I look across the street as I'm turning the corner of my house and there's this most beautiful doe just standing there. Just this beautiful doe standing there across the street. And the doe's eating and it looks up and it looks at me. And I'm like, oh, it's about to take off running. And it doesn't take off running. It just looks at me and I stop and I look at it felt like 10 minutes. It was probably like three seconds. We just look at each other, and then it just turns, and it gently and calmly walks off into the woods. And in that moment, right, like, like I just had this overwhelming sense of peace. Right, like, like, like there was just a gift of beauty from the Lord going, there's peace and there's beauty in the world still in the midst of the suffering. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. And I just began to say that over and over again. Lord, I need my soul to long for you in this. I need to long for you in this. Don't let the suffering drive me from you. Cause it to make me long for you. And I had peace. I had texted a friend in our church earlier that night um, to pray for us. And the next day, I gave them an update on our night. And I said, I told them about the dough and the peacefulness that I had. And they responded back with a picture that they were, and they had told me the night before, I'm going on a walk, I'm praying while I walk. And they texted me a picture on their walk, a doe came across their path as well. He's like, I saw this on my walk as I was praying for you all. I'm like, I don't know. That's amazing. Peacefulness, both kind of feeling just the Lord going, there's peace, there's, it's okay. And the suffering, it's okay. Right, my prayer wasn't sophisticated. It was simply, help me. And I'm not going to stop asking until you help. And then there's a moment of him going, let me give your heart some peace right now with, with the beauty of my world. Right, guys, like, here's what I want us to, to lean into today. Here's what I would love for us to take from this. Prayer is simply coming into the presence of God as needy children and asking God for help, asking dad for help. It's not all prayer is, all right? Again, our disclaimers at the beginning, there's more in prayer. There's different types of prayer. But at the heart of all of it, at the heart of every aspect of prayer, it's needy children coming to their father to go, 
your dad, I'm not. Your God, I'm not. Help. Help me worship you. Help me love you. Help me know you. Help me not doubt you. Help provide. Help give answer. Help give, give wisdom. Help. And he promises to hear you. And he promises to receive you. If you are a child of God's, then, then if, or if you're a Christian, then you are a child of God's, and he is your good father who promises to listen. He'll bend down and he'll listen to you, Psalm 116. He wants you to come in and sit at the table, uh, and, and he wants to come in and sit at the table of your life and to eat with you, Revelation 3. He wants to receive you into his lap like little children, Mark 10. He wants you to bother him in the middle of the night like the shameless neighbor in Luke 11. He wants to grant you justice like he did the persistent woman in Luke 18. He wants, to be, he wants you to be giddy with excitement over the bigness and goodness of God like the disciples in Luke 10. He's inviting you to come to him in prayer and to simply revel in the presence of your father who's good and wants you there. So my hope for those of us who are followers of Jesus today is that we would leave here and simply go, I think, I think dad might want me. I think my father might actually want me. And that that would draw us in with all of our mess and our need to be with him. You're like, Joshua, what does it look like? Just go be with him. Just sit down and go, I don't even know what I'm doing here. But I think you want me here. So help. Let him take it from there. If you're not a believer, this promise of a father who welcomes you is not yours yet. Rather, he's a judge who will judge the living and the dead. But it can be yours simply by placing your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's son who was sent to live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death in your place, and rise again to give you life. Place your faith in Jesus. Become God's son. Become his daughter. And this promise of his invitation to come to him as his child is yours. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.